Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 4, look at something that Paul said here. You know, I believe Paul was a success in this area. And here's what Paul had to say about it. Philippians chapter 4, in verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but lacked opportunity. Paul was in prison, and what he's talking about is these Philippians had not known exactly where Paul was. He was in transit on the way from uh, Judea to Rome for about a year or so, and they didn't know exactly where he was, and so they had loved him. He mentions that a number of times in here. This was the only church that had ever communicated with him concerning giving and receiving. This was a church that supported him even after he left the area and sent offerings unto him on a number of occasions. And so what he's saying is, he says, now your care of me, in other words, he's talking about financial, they had sent an offering unto him, it has flourished again. They wanted to do it earlier, but they didn't have the opportunity. You know, it wasn't the same as our day. They didn't have the same communication. They didn't know where he was. They couldn't call him on board the ship. Amen. He was out of pocket for a year. Nobody knew where he was. So he's saying that your care of me had flourished. Uh, you were careful or you wanted to do it before, but you lacked opportunity. And then in verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. You know, this scripture shows that you have to learn to be content. Being content is something that you learn. It's something that you teach yourself. It's a choice. It's a decision. It is not a result of circumstances. And again, I've already made this point, but it, it could bear repeating from now until Jesus comes because we are one of the most discontent societies. We are the most affluent, wealthy, prosperous group of people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. And yet I can guarantee you that most people in here are more discontent than your parents or your grandparents were that had much less. They lived a simpler lifestyle. They had less, and yet there was more enjoyment, more fulfillment, not because of a lack of things, but because of an attitude. We've got an attitude. We've indulged ourselves, and we've accepted this premise that it, these things are going to make me happy, and that's not so. You need to recognize that joy and happiness and peace and contentment is not based on things. It's a choice. It's a state of mind, not a state of being. That's a good way of saying it. You know, contentment is not a state of being. It is a state of mind. You can be content regardless of what situation you're in. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Paul here, it's something that he learned. Did you know you can choose, you can change the way that you think? It's like Clifton said yesterday, you can control your thoughts. I don't do it, but you can do it. <laughs> thought that was funny. Not only can you do it, you should do it. It's the way that we should live, amen? We should learn to be content. It's your choice. It really is. And this is really encouraging to me. Paul said he had learned it. It didn't come naturally. It's not automatic. It's something that you have to be taught. And you know, the things that I'm sharing here through these scriptures, that if you'll take the scriptures and if you'll meditate on it and receive what I'm saying, you can teach yourself to be content. It's a choice. You can make yourself content. And on the other hand, nobody can make you discontent. If it's a choice, if it's a state of mind, if it's something that you choose, then other people can influence your contentment. They can do what they want to and you can still be content. True. 
I know some of you are kind of swallowing hard on that, but it's true. I was talking with a guy in prison, and this guy was in for a potential of 24 years, and I, he was talking about how he just believed God was going to get him out, and it turned out he did get out a couple of weeks ago. But anyway, as I was talking to him, I said, what happens if you don't get out? What happens if you had to serve the full 24 years? In other words, circumstances. Is this going to affect your contentment? You know, he says, it doesn't matter. He says, for the first time in my life, I've got joy, I've got peace, I'm content. And he says, if I had to spend it in prison, I'm happier than I've ever been. There's people in here that need the Lord. You know what? There's some people in prison that are experiencing more joy and contentment than many of us on the outside. And it's not because of circumstances. It's because of a state of mind. It's because of a focus. Paul said here, you can learn to be content. That means that your situations don't dictate to you. You can choose. And on the other hand, somebody can come in and affect your circumstances. They can lock you up and put you in jail. And it shouldn't affect anything. It's your choice. Paul and Silas in jail, 16th chapter of the book of Acts, they were still rejoicing and praising God and being thankful and because they had a choice. Amen? If you understand this, I tell you, it puts you in the driver's seat. Some people dislike what I'm saying because they say, you're putting condemnation on me. You're making me responsible. You're saying it's my fault that I'm the way I am. Yep, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but you know what the good news about that is? That if you're the one responsible, that means that you're the one in authority and that you can change this situation if you choose to change it. If you blame everybody else and say it's their fault that I'm like this, then that puts them in the driver's seat. They're the one with authority. Life is the one that's controlling how you're feeling. And that's the way that our society has gone. They blame other people for their emotions and for their outlook and for what's happening to them. That's bondage. That is not what the Word of God teaches. We have put too much emphasis, an undue emphasis, on circumstances and looking to those things to fulfill us, and that is not what Paul was saying. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let me share a radical passage with you. This will blow somebody away. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 1, Paul spoke to Timothy and he said, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about. The word doting here is talking about an undue emphasis, an overemphasis, doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such turn some from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's old English for saying you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Amen. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Now notice up here in the fourth the third and the fourth verse, it says, If any man teach otherwise. Otherwise than what? Otherwise than verses 1 and 2. If any man says anything contrary to 1 and 2, he is uh, proud and knows nothing. 
he's causing strife, etc. In other words, these are strong statements. I mean, Paul is leaving no room for variance here. He says, if anybody's saying something different than what I'm saying, he's just operating in pride. He doesn't know anything. All he's doing is causing strife and discontentment, telling people that gain, and we always take this to talk about money, and it is talking about money, but it's not just talking about finances. It's talking about things, that your contentment is bound in things. It's somebody teaching that your life is bound up in your circumstances and your circumstances dictate how you feel is what he's talking about. And he says, from such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's look back at verses 1 and 2 and look at what is so important that he's saying if anybody teaches other than this, they're proud, they don't know anything, all they're doing is causing trouble and putting people's attention on external things. So in verse 1 he says, Let as many servants as be under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. You know the word servant here literally means slave. There's different words for the term servant in the Bible and this is dulios, it's the most servile term of them all. It's talking about a bond slave. It's talking about slavery is what it's talking about. He's saying slaves serve your masters and count them worthy of all honor that the name and the doctrine of God be not blasphemed. Now did you know that most people today would not agree with this? And if you don't agree with it, then you're proud, knowing nothing. You're talking about questions and strife of words is what Paul's saying. You know today, if you were in a situation, if you were over in a foreign country and they had slavery and stuff, I guarantee you most of us would feel a God-ordained obligation to get in and change that situation. This is unjust. People are suffering. We've got to get them out of this. Do you know that that's not the uh, approach that Paul had? Paul never rebuked slavery, and slavery was the dominant thing of his day. Now, am I saying that God is for slavery? No, God never intended people to be the property of another person. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. God wasn't for it. Paul wasn't for it. But Paul never spoke against it. Never spoke against it. Matter of fact, Paul actually told slaves to, to uh, just enjoy where they were. Matter of fact, I'm going to come back to this, but look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in a passage of Scripture here. In verse 20, it says, Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Same word, slave. Care not for it, but if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. Boy, that's a radical statement. You know what he's saying? He says, Let everybody wherein you're called abide there. He was talking specifically about marriage. He says, Are you, Were you married when you got born again? Stay married. Were you single? Stay single. Doesn't matter about these things. And then he uses circumcision, and then he talks about slavery. And he says, were you a slave when you got saved? He says, don't worry about it. Don't care about it. In other words, it's not important. And he says, can you be made free? If you can be made free, well, stay a slave and use it as a testimony. Radical statement. Well, most people today just hit the ceiling. Man, what are you saying? You should throw your weight against all these social injustices. We should right all the wrongs. We should do this. I, again, God is not for slavery. God didn't intend that. We fought a civil war over that here in our country. And I'm not saying that it, slavery is a good thing, but I'm saying that Paul never used his authority as a minister to campaign against slavery. Some people may think, well, what was the use? I mean, it was so rampant and his... Society didn't have votes and you couldn't petition people. There was no point in it. He just resigned himself to it. 
Well, even if you use that line of reasoning, Paul may not have been able to change the Roman Empire, but I guarantee you among the Christians, Paul could have outlawed slavery. Paul had enough influence that he could have outlawed slavery. He could have had all Christian slave owners release their slaves. And yet back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, after he talks to the slaves, then in chapter 2 he says, And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. In other words, he says, you know, it's one thing for a slave to serve an ungodly master who doesn't know any better, and they might reason and say, well, this guy doesn't know any better. He's not born again. There's no way he could see things differently. But if a slave was serving a uh, Christian owner, then the slave, it'd be easy for them to say, well, what about Paul? He said that in Christ there is neither bond nor free, barbarian, Scythian, Jew, or Gentile. We're all the same. We're brothers in the Lord. Why should this person own me and treat me like this? And it would have been easy for a Christian slave to have rebelled at that and have demanded that a Christian slave owner release him. And yet Paul said, serve him. And if he's a brother, then you ought to even give him double honor. You ought to serve him better because he's a part of the body of Christ. Give him more service than you'd give an unbeliever. Instead of standing against the practice and criticizing it, Paul sat there and told him, says, man, you ought to be content. And if anybody's teaching you other than this, they're proud. They don't know anything. They're causing strife, and they're putting undue emphasis on carnal things, thinking that gain is godliness. Self-success and promotion is godliness. From such, withdraw yourself. Boy, this just smacks our Western civilization type of thinking. But you know what Paul basically is saying here is, that if you, in, in another place, I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly where this is right now, but he says, he that is called being a slave is the Lord's free man. And he that is a free man, when you get called, you're a slave. But see, the point that he's making is external things, your condition in life, whether you're a slave or a slave owner, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're a pauper, whether you're the boss, the CEO, or whether you're a laborer, those things are in, insignificant. They don't matter. A person's joy and peace and happiness does not consist in external things like that. The point that he's getting at is that, man, you're, you should find your life in Christ. And if you're a slave and if you know Christ, you can be more free than a person who's free and doesn't know Christ. Jesus did not come to change government systems. He did not come to rule this world. Man, I could get plumb off the subject right here and make some awesome points. But since this is just a week before election or something, let me just throw in a couple of things. I won't spend a lot of time on this. But you know what? There are some people, Christians, that are putting all of their weight into political process. They're trying to mobilize the vote. They're trying to get people out. They want to vote certain people in, vote others out. And I tell you, I have a strong opinion. I'm not going to give it in this message, but I got a strong opinion on what I feel about who should be in office. But you know, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Some people are preaching that, man, if certain people get in that we're going to fall, that the nation is going to go to the dogs, morality is gone, and their whole hope is in the political process changing things. They want to legislate no homosexuality. They want to legislate all of these things. They want to turn America back to God through the political and through the uh, court process. And that's where a lot of people's emphasis are. And yet, did you know that, that when this country was founded, John Adams, the second president of the United States, he said that if this, he said democracy is wholly unsuited for anything but a moral people. He says if this nation ever ceases to be moral, democracy will kill us. What he's basically saying is that since we have the right to change and to control ourselves and to vote 
anything in or anything out, since we have the right to self-govern, if our society ever becomes immoral, then democracy is doomed. What the church is trying to do is to use democracy, trying to mobilize forces to control people who are immoral and make them act moral and put restraints on them. The gospel is what was intended to do that. The, the thing that we should be emphasizing and putting all of our effort into is to change people's hearts one at a time. If you ever get people to where people are changed, they won't vote for immoral leaders. They won't vote for people who lie all of the time. They won't vote for things that are contrary to godly principles. The reason that things are going the way they're going in our political system is not because of the political system. It's a reflection of society. It's because society has been going that way and the church is the one that allowed this. The church started ordaining and legalizing homosexuality. Homo they permitted it. They've started allowing same-sex marriages in the priesthood and things like that. Once the church does it, then society is just like a floodgate was open, etc. I guarantee you the problem isn't our politics. Politics are the only reason they're going the way they are is because we have so many immoral people in this nation that would care more about the almighty buck and if somebody will give them something, they'll take it if they have to sell morality down the tubes. They don't give a rip about anybody else. That's where the problem is. And so to put all of our efforts into politics, I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote. Man, Christians should vote. We, should have, we have a responsibility. We've got a dual citizenship. All right, you've got a heavenly citizenship as well as an earthly, and to be a good citizen of the United States, you need to vote. And there's nothing wrong with being in politics, but it should not be the focus of the church. The gospel is infinitely more powerful than the political process. And the gospel can set people free. It doesn't matter what situation you're under. The gospel can reach people on welfare, a person on welfare. You don't have to outlaw welfare or force this or legislate this. You reach somebody with the gospel and you put the true gospel on the inside of them, if they ever get hold of the word of God, they'll be off welfare quicker than the government can do it. Jesus will solve those problems. So see, the answer is in a person's personal relationship with the Lord, and yet we're trying to use all kinds of other things. We want to get in and legislate and do away with injustices. They're always going to be here, and the only way you can really affect them is to do what Paul is talking about. Just tell those men, if you're a believer and if you're in a bad situation, just learn how to find your contentment and your joy in the Lord. Don't look to other things. I know that this is hard for some people to believe. Some people think, well, man, if slavery was still working in our society, how could you ever be content? Well, man, there's, there's thousands and thousands of examples of slaves in this country that knew more about God and had more contentment than their great-great-great-great-grandchildren who are being discriminated against. Now, am I saying that there is no discrimination, there's no problems in America? No, they still exist, but I'm saying you're infinitely better off than your grandparents were, and some of them had more joy, more peace, they were more content than what their descendants are, and it's not because of the circumstances, it's because they knew God. They were more content with God than their children are. Amen? It's not your circumstances, it's your problem. And that's what our society is doing. We're trying to solve all of the problems so that everybody can be happy. Happiness is not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon things. It's a choice. It's, it's a relationship with God. You know, I saw this show Spartacus one time. I don't know if any of you remember seeing that with Kurt Douglas in it, but I saw that show Spartacus. And I mean, the first time I ever saw that, I grieved. It broke my heart. And it was, you know, it's a true story about the slaves that revolted at Rome. 
and how that they were finally conquered. And they lined the road with those people for 28, 30 miles or something like that, crucified them by the thousands. And just, I mean, it was terrible, the things that happened. When I saw that, I thought, God, how could things like this happen? How could you let that happen? Why didn't you come in and change these government systems? And you know, the Lord, it would take a long time to show you what he was telling me, but the Lord basically told me that if he was into establishing government systems to set people free, then that would, that would be a kingdom that would be in the physical realm. It would be subject to the whims of a new dictator. It would be constantly under attack. It would come and go and things like this. And uh, there's just no way that that could successfully stand. But what God did was establish a kingdom in the hearts of people. And he said if those slaves truly know, knew him, it wouldn't matter if they were crucified or whatever. They could go out with such joy and peace that no man could ever touch it. No man could ever affect them. God established a kingdom that was greater that nobody can affect. Some of you may wonder about that, but I've been over into Rome and I've literally seen the places where the Christians were thrown to the lions and stuff and they have documented facts that for every one Christian that was killed, there was like six or seven Romans that would jump out of their seats and run out there and face immediate death, but they wanted to receive the joy and the peace that those Christians had. Nero literally stuck his fingers in his ears and said, why must these Christians sing? They sang as they were burned at the stake and as they were cr uh, cruelly killed and things like that. I've seen inscriptions where a man said, here lies my wife and six-month-old daughter who gave their life for the glory of Jesus in the Circus Maximus today. It wasn't a statement of grief. It was a statement of honor. Some of us think about, well, how could they do that? Because they had a contentment that was in a person and it didn't matter about physical things. And they actually had this, this attitude that Paul had that for me to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. They found their fulfillment so much in the Lord Jesus Christ that, man, martyrdom was a, like a badge that they wore. They bragged about it. They put it on their tombs. They were honoring the Lord. Most of us just think, I can't even relate to that. That's because we are proud and know nothing and we dote about all these other things and we're putting the emphasis on all of this and we have come to believe that our joy and contentment is all in external things instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're missing the treasure that God has placed on the inside of us and we're looking at all of these other things. And that's the reason that we are probably the most affluent society that's ever lived and likewise one of the most discontent, sad, depressed, defeated, even in Christian circles. You know, when I come into churches and give invitations, it's not unusual to have 80, 90% of spirit-filled Christians stand up because they constantly battle depression. That's a sin. That's a shame. That should not be. That, that never should happen. And the only reason it happens is because we are thinking like the world. The Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It doesn't matter if you're born again, if you've got the life of God on the inside of you. If you're thinking wrong, you're going to get wrong. We need to change our thinking. We need to focus our attention on Jesus and what he's done for us and take our attention off of all of the external carnal things and get away from thinking that a new house, a new car, a new wife, a new church... A new this, a new that is going to make me happy. Man, your happiness lies in the Lord. And if you're discontent, it's not your circumstances that made you discontent. It's the fact that you aren't appreciating what God's done for you. And that's a breeding ground for the devil. I tell you, you need to get your attention focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look over in uh, Luke chapter 4. I'm going to show you something here that at first you may not think is connected, but I believe that it is. 
Luke chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. It's also recorded in Matthew chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answering, answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands shall they bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now you know this temptation here. Many times we miss what the real temptation was. When Satan said, Turn this stone into bread. Jesus was hungry, and most people look at this as a physical temptation. I believe that that was a part of the equation. It is true that he was hungry. But you know what the real temptation, you know what? Satan is subtle. And we've already talked about this, how he came against Adam and Eve. He chose the most subtle animal of the field. Very seldom is the temptation that we think the real temptation. There's usually a more subtle um, point under the surface. The real thing here wasn't turning a stone into bread. That was not the real temptation. You know what the real temptation to Jesus was? He came to him, and in each one of these cases, he says, If you be the Son of God. You know what the real temptation was? Satan was playing on doubt if there was any inroad of doubt that Jesus had about who he was. He was trying to get Jesus to prove to Satan and to himself who he was. Now, some people might think, oh, no, Satan was expressing his doubt. He was saying, if you're really the Son of God. Well, if you believe that, you degrade this whole thing to where it has no power at all. Satan wasn't just expressing his doubts. He knew who Jesus was. He was trying to play on Jesus and get Jesus to doubt and to do something to prove, use the supernatural power of God to prove who he was. I know some of you are thinking, now wait a minute, Jesus never had any doubt about who he was. Well, I don't believe that he doubted, but I believe that the temptation was there. I believe that that was a strong temptation. You know, it's over in Philippians chapter 2, the scripture says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 5. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That means that he didn't think it was unjust or inequitable. In other words, he knew that he was God. But he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And then it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. One of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that Jesus was God in the flesh. His spirit existed from eternity. He is God Almighty, but his physical body was a human body, not riddled with sin, but it still was human. And Jesus, when he was born, 
I know that this rubs some people the wrong way, but this is just the truth. You need to, you need to come to grips with this. But Jesus was born. His body was a little baby. I mean, Jesus had to be burped when he was a little baby. Jesus had to have his diapers changed. He had to learn to control his bowels. Jesus had to learn to walk. He had to have somebody teach him how to talk. He was not one week old speaking perfect, perfectly, amen. We think of him as God, and he just was God and complete. Well, in his spirit, that's true. But his physical body, the Scripture says in Luke chapter 2, I believe it's verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus had to grow, and his physical body was as much physical as my physical body is or yours. His physical body had to be taught and educated. His brain did not instantly know who he was. He didn't remember in his physical mind creating the world. He didn't remember those things. It was in his spirit, and his spirit, I'm sure that he had revelation. God communicated things to him, and I'm sure that there was plenty of things to bear witness. And, uh, you know... Um, Mary and Joseph taught him things about the angels coming to them, about the miraculous birth, about the shepherds, about the wise men, all these things. I'm sure that he heard these things and they were confirmations to him. But the bottom line is Jesus perceived in his natural realm that he was God by faith. It was a revelation from his heart. He had a witness, but ultimately he had to accept it in his brain by faith that he was God. Man, that's awesome. That makes him operate the same way that you and I operate. I know it was Wendell or Clifton was talking about that yesterday, that Jesus had to operate the way we do, by faith. Jesus had to believe by faith that he was God. He had to trust the things that God had spoken unto him. Jesus was operating by faith that he was the Son of God, and Satan came and literally tried to get the sinless, perfect Son of God to doubt that he was the Son of God. That was the real temptation. That's what all of this was. It wasn't about bread, and it wasn't about falling off the temple. It was trying to get him to do something, use the supernatural power of God to prove who he was. Now, see, once again, this underscores the fact that if Satan could tempt Adam and Eve, who were perfect, and get them discontent when they had no reason to be, they lived in perfection. If he could take the disciples of Jesus, who were walking with Jesus in the flesh, and saw Jesus operate as no man ever had, and if they weren't satisfied with him, and if Satan, I mean, he only had one shot at Jesus, he pulled out his biggest weapon, his strongest deception of everything, and you know what it was? He came and tried to get him to doubt who he was. Man, if Satan tried to use doubt on Jesus because that was his biggest weapon that he had, don't you think that that's also the way that he comes at us? He tries to get us to doubt who we are and what we have and start looking to external things to be our source of joy and peace and happiness. When the truth is, we have to be so strong in who we are that, man, we don't allow ourselves to doubt. We don't succumb to the doubt and don't try and get into proving all of these things. You know, when I first got turned on to the Lord, this was in the charismatic days, in the charismatic revival days, and I used to travel all over here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and go to meetings. And I mean, man, people were so excited about what God was doing. You'd go up and meet a person and stuff, and they'd say, praise God, I'm baptized in the Holy Ghost, speaking tongues, and they'd give you just a brief resume of who they were and what they had. They'd tell you everything about them. 
man, I've been spirit-filled for two months, two years, whatever. They tell you about it. I've seen people raised from the dead. I've seen this happen. And, you know, I, I got into that stuff because you, you wanted people, you were, you were wanting people to know that, man, God had done something in your life. But, you know, it got to where it was a pride type of thing, and it got to where that it was an ego trip, and it was not good, and there's a lot of bad things that happened out of it. And anyway, I remember going over to W.V. Grant's place one time, and a guy came up, gave me his resume, told me how important he was, and I remember just saying, well, my name's Andy. And he waited on, on all of my qualifications, and I didn't say anything, and he just was convinced I wasn't born again. He watched me through that whole service, and being an ex-Baptist, I wasn't quite as lively as they were, and I'm sure he was convinced I wasn't saved. And when the invitation was given, he came up with a couple of his friends, started praying for me. One was saying, hold on. The other one saying, let go. And, man, they prayed over me. And, you know, all I'd have had to have done is just tell them, man, that, and have played the games with them. But you know what? For the first time in my life, I didn't need to prove to anybody who I was. I knew who I was. I knew God loved me, and I didn't care what they thought about me. I didn't have to have their acceptance. And you know what? When I left there, I actually left there excited, built up, and encouraged because for the first time, I didn't care what somebody else thought about me. I didn't have to have their acceptance. I knew who I was. And it was a major stepping stone, a major victory in my life not to have to play the games and to try and impress somebody. And it, it was a major deal in my life. And you know what? There's a lot of people that are still so insecure that I guarantee you when somebody comes and says, well, I don't believe God heals today, you get into an argument, not because you really love that person and want to change that person. You're trying to prove to yourself as much as anything. You're insecure. You've got to win this battle. You don't want it because you're struggling with it. You know, I used to do that. I used to argue with people because if I lost this argument, maybe my arguments weren't as good as theirs, and I had to win. It was proving to me as much as it was to anybody else. Now I've got to a place where I know what I believe, and if I can see that it's going to benefit a person, then I'll debate it with them, but I'm not going to debate it with them for any other reason. I don't have to do it for myself. You know, you can come to a place of security knowing who you are that you don't have to do anything to prove who you are and what you have. And see, that's where Jesus was. If Jesus would have responded and turned that stone into bread, there really wouldn't have been any sin in turning a stone into bread if he was hungry and if he was starving, if he needed some bread. There wouldn't have been anything wrong with doing that. But the thing that would have been wrong was if he would have done it out of fear, out of doubt, out of insecurity, trying to prove to somebody who he was, then he would have just empowered those doubts and that insecurity in his life. And that's what Jesus resisted. That's what he turned against. You know, Satan is coming against you the exact same way. He's making you doubt the very basics. He makes you doubt who you are. You don't know who you are and what you have. And so we start looking for fulfillment in other things instead of recognizing that God has already placed everything on the inside of you that you need to be happy and content. We get to where we start talking about social injustices and until I get this situation changed, until I get out of this skid row level, until I get into a management position, until I get a better wife, a better husband, until I do this or that, I cannot be happy. That's a proud person, knows nothing. They are just talking about strife of words, causing problems, putting all of the emphasis on the external thinking that our happiness is found in external things from such withdraw yourself. And I can guarantee you a large section of Christianity is right in that category to where we are preaching to people all of the externals. 
Spirit-filled Christians, I believe, are probably more susceptible to this than anybody else because, once again, Spirit-filled Christians do believe in the power of God to intervene and to change marriages and to heal bodies and to prosper you financially and to do these things. A lot of denominational people aren't even looking for these kind of things. They've been told that God doesn't do that anymore. So the people who are committed to God in the denominations, many times their motivation is less greedy and selfish than spirit-filled people because they don't look for anything in this life. Their, their hopes are all off in the future. Amen. If you serve a God who you believe killed your father, that's what I was told when I was 12 years old, God killed my dad because he needed him in heaven more than I needed him. God puts problems on you to teach you things. God does all of these things. If you still have enough commitment that you serve a God like that, you are not real self-centered and real self-seeking. Amen. But you know what? A lot of Pentecostals come to the Lord because, man, their marriage was in a mess. Somebody told them the Lord had healed their marriage. So they came to the Lord and they received and self-received some benefit from it. And then God is also going to prosper you. He's going to heal your body. And it's easy to get to where you come to the Lord just for what God can produce in your life. And it's easy to get to using God just, you know, for like a grocery cart. Go up and down the aisles of heaven and take this and take this and take this. And man, I need this. And that's the attitude that you get. Now, although God does provide all of those things, they're love gifts. He does it because he loves you. And you ought to receive them because you know that God loves you. And the scripture says, let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Psalms 35, 27, or 27, 35 or something like that. I think it's 3527. So yes, you ought to receive it, but I'm saying that should not be your motivation. We ought to be serving God and recognizing that, man, my fulfillment is in Christ and it doesn't matter what my externals are. You know, when I went through Vietnam, that's a situation that a lot of people, I talked to a man last night that was still spaced out 26 years later and he wasn't all here. I tried to talk to him and couldn't even talk to him and he's still upset. He was taken captive over in Vietnam. You know, that affected a lot of people. And yet I went through Vietnam and it was just like I was in a bubble. I mean, God so supernaturally blessed me and protected me. You know, it was many years after, it was over 20 years after I got out of Vietnam that I was in Chicago and I had a man give me a book. And this book had 12 testimonies of people who had been in Vietnam and who had survived and got born again after the fact. And it told their story and how that God had taken you know, away all of the hurts and the pains and the fears and the different things that they had. And this guy's testimony was one of the ones in the book. So he autographed it for me, gave the book to me, and wanted me to read it. So I thought out of politeness I'd read this book because I knew he had asked me about it. So I started with his testimony, and it was good. It was powerful. So I read another one, and I wound up staying up all night long reading that book. Never had read anything on Vietnam, didn't care to read anything on Vietnam. But you know what? As I got to reading that, I was shocked because three of those people were in the Americal division, the same division I was in. Two of them were there the exact time that I was there. And one of them, as I got to reading that, I was on that LZ. I was in this situation that he was talking about. And he was writing about it from an unbeliever's perspective, how that the Vietnamese were coming and you could see the muzzle fire from the weapons. We took something like 170 mortar hits in an area half the size of this auditorium in about two hours. And I was there during this whole thing. And he was writing about it from an unbeliever's perspective and talking about the fear. And, the, and I mean, it's just like 20 years later, God pulled back a veil and let me see what it would have been like 
if I hadn't have been in the Lord and had my mind stayed on the Lord. And I mean fear, terror hit me. It took me three days to pray that stuff off of me. I mean, I was shook to my core, and it's like God just showed me. See what it would have been like if it hadn't have been for me? But you know what? I remember what I was thinking. I never even mentioned this to my wife. I never mentioned it to my mother. I never mentioned it to anybody until I read that book because it wasn't a big deal. I remember that thing happening. I remember what I was thinking, seeing the muzzle fire from the Vietnamese coming up the hill. I was thinking, Lord, if I die, I know where I'm going. And I was feeling compassion for these Vietnamese. I was praying, please make him born again. I was interceding for those guys. I was having a rush of God's kind of love flow out of me. I was feeling compassion. I was really feeling the joy and the peace of the Lord in a situation where another guy was just panicked and freaked out. And I never even thought about it. I never even told anybody about it. I was in the exact situation that this guy was in. And you know the difference? My mind was stayed on the Lord, and because of the peace of the Lord, I didn't have any fear. Instead, I had joy, and I had peace. I had compassion flowing out of me towards the very enemy that was trying to come and kill us. Exact same situation, two totally different results. You know why? Because of focus. Because of where my peace was. It wasn't external things. I've been in situations where people trying to kill me, and you know what? Felt nothing but joy and peace. Nothing but joy and peace. Amen. I was out with the chaplain one day, and we were at this Vietnamese uh, church visiting with the pastor. And it was against regulations. You weren't supposed to go out there by yourself. But we did it, because the chaplain's chaplain. He can do about what he wants to. And I was the chaplain's bodyguard. So I was out there driving the Jeep. And while we were in this church talking to this chaplain, I mean to this pastor, he, the chaplain asked the pastor, he says, are there any Vietnamese around here, any Viet Cong? He said, oh, lots of them. He said, really? He said, yeah, see across there. And I mean, on the other side of the street, it was a street, and on the other side of the street was this building. He says, that's a Viet Cong headquarters. He said, you're kidding. And we looked, and there were Vietnamese, I mean, Viet Cong everywhere. I mean, with their guns and stuff. And our U.S. Jeep was parked across the street in front of this church. We should have been killed for sure. And that chaplain just freaked. And we didn't know what to do. You know what we did? We got in the Jeep and I said, here. And I just drove right through these guys. They parted, let us go through. It's like they were blind. They never saw us. Had total peace in the whole situation. Never thought about it until years later. And you know what? It's just because of my focus. I was on the Lord. I knew God wasn't going to let me die in Vietnam. I was in an airplane one time with a guy, a pilot. And I mean, he was flying the plane. And I was riding back. It was one of these little tiny planes. My shoulder was touching the window, touching his shoulder, and his shoulder was touching this window. And we were struggling and flying along, and we ran into this bad weather. And this guy, I mean, that plane was bucking and falling a thousand feet at a time. He was screaming at the top of his lungs, praying in tongues yelling and we were headed that direction but the plane was pointed this direction the wind was so bad and that thing and i mean he could only hold the yoke about 10 minutes and then he i'd have to fly it and i was flying this plane we flew over alamogordo rifle range and they radioed up if you don't get out of here we're going to shoot you down and he was so nervous he couldn't radio back i got on there and i said hey i've never been up my little plow i don't know what we're doing we're getting out of here as fast as we can and and anyway, finally, it got so bad, the pilot, now, you, you got to get a picture here. The pilot puts his hands over his eyes, and he says, my God, we're going to die, we're going to die. The pilot starts screaming. 
<laughs> and I had to fly the plane with one hand and grab him with the other. And I said, you straighten up in the name of Jesus. I said, we will not die. I said, I didn't live through Vietnam to die in your airplane. I said, get hold of yourself. I had to fly that plane for 30 or 40 minutes while this guy composed himself. But you know what? I never had any fear through that whole thing. You know what? You could have been upset over that. That could ruin your whole day. But you know what? You can get your attention so focused on the Lord that, praise God, it doesn't matter about things that you really can. Amen. Praise God. It's not your problems that your problems, it's your focus that your problem. It's the fact that your, your joy and your peace is in external things. If your joy is in the Lord, He's the same. Whether it's a, you know, in a small plane or if it's in Vietnam or in your family or in your job or whatever, if your joy is in a person, the Lord Jesus, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He doesn't change, and your joy doesn't have to fluctuate.